Okay, well, you've heard from the panelists um, uh, a number of perspectives which are pretty much aligned. So uh, let me now invite you to raise questions and challenge the panelists on what they've said and uh, press them a little bit harder. Um, on the one hand, we have heard an optimistic perspective, so we know better uh, to identify the situation. We have better coordination mechanisms, yet we see so many people in growing numbers in extreme food crisis situations. So we have time probably for two rounds of discussion. I'll take uh, about four questions uh, at a time. Here, first in the room, and then I go online. Who would like to raise a question to panelists? If you take the floor, please say your name. That's also for the people uh, online. Uh, and um, uh, who you would like to address the question to. My name is Dan Silverstein. I'm a private sector and capital markets advisor. And the question really goes to IFRI, I think. Maybe I should ask of Schengen. Um, where's Venezuela? Okay, well, others that can address it as well. As I said, I'll reserve the questions and uh, would like to answer them. Uh, one in the back. Yeah. Nick? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Nick Minot from the Markets Trade Institutions Divi uh, Division at IFPRI. Um, I, um, I, I appreciated your comments, Arif, about the need for high-frequency data and uh, you know getting close to real time in order to make decisions and respond quickly. Um, so I have a two-part question. One is, what is the role of an annual report in that context? Is this sort of advocacy, raising awareness, uh, fundraising. Uh, and then the second part is, um, I was wondering if you could, I know we've talked about this before, but I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on the efforts to, uh, to increase the frequency of this type of information and uh, in, in the, the flow to decision makers at the uh, donors and, and uh, other partners. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <clears throat> my name is Ahab Tamu from uh, CFZ Children. Uh, my question is from the title. So how is this report is going to change the way we respond? It says from humanitarian development response. So what makes it different, really? Uh, the other question I have is most of the countries that are affected are related to conflict. So as a humanitarian community, what are we doing to prevent the conflict itself? Lady over there. That's Hi, uh, Katie Gronsky from the Pew Charitable Trusts. I'm curious if uh, you all are looking into anything related to water and land efficiency, um, and if so, what uh, is sort of on the horizon? Virgil. Thank you, Rajul Pandyalocha, Devpri. This is a question for Beth. Beth, you mentioned the reorganization underway at USAID, uh, resilience being um, higher on the profile. And USAID has also been at the forefront of investments in nutrition, and uh, along with food security. So I'm just wondering how you factor nutrition into resilience building um, and, and how, how, um, um, what type of attention that will get uh, going forward. Thank you. Uh, let me take one more question if there's a question online. Can, no? Not yet? 
Okay, maybe they're holding their horses for now. Okay, so we have uh, five questions. Uh, uh, maybe, Bess, you want to start with the last question uh, first? how complex it is, the importance of water and sanitation within that. I think um, the proposed redesign focuses on a, uh, on a new bureau that is the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security that would have um, uh, a center of excellence for nutrition within it. It would elevate uh, nutrition leadership within the agency um, to the deputy assistant administrator level just get into the bureaucratics, but I think it's important and would really um, have a way to pull together the disparate um, programming and resource teams that focus on nutrition across the agency into a consolidated approach with the vision and enable us to program in a more synergistic, coordinated way. So I think it's a huge elevation and increased importance on nutrition going forward. Um, I also wanted to just um, address a little bit about the question about how um, how your question about how we're going to um, plan how how this will change how we're doing business and I think that for us at USAID and I think also for the broader community this increased focus on resilience is really important it does bring together a lot of the sectors that we need to really think about how we address recurrent humanitarian crisis before it happens um, recognizing that where we invest is important again we're shifting uh, we're not shifting we're increasing investment in areas that we hadn't invested in before. We're working in ways, um, you know, to have more flexible contracting mechanisms for those of, for those of you who uh, share bureaucratic struggles like some of us do, having the right contracting mechanisms so we can be flexible um, that can shift to respond to the real-time data and the real-time needs. So we have mechanisms on the ground. For example, in Ethiopia in 2016, we had development mechanisms on the ground. They're on the ground all the time. So how can we um, have our contracts, our contracting officers, our agreement set so we can surge when we need to? We, we saw our, val our livestock value chain program in southern Ethiopia able to immediately start um, increasing loans to livestock traders so they could pull um, do some of the offtake. We um, increased assistance to fodder um, producers and makers. And so we were there right there on the ground to be able to do that before the humanitarians even came in. And so I think that when planning those programs with the humanitarians on the ground, knowing what types of issues might come up, making sure we have more flexible mechanisms and investing in those places in the first place, I think this is all game changing and something that we've started doing. We've proven that it can be successful and we will increase our efforts on this going forward. Okay, thanks. Uh, Bess, uh, Arif, you may want to follow up, Bose, uh, on this question, how this, the report is uh, going to change responses and also whether the frequency of reporting should not be much better in order to be responsive. So um, let me start with the, with the usefulness of, of a report like this. Um, one is on, you know, food security is always very divergent views and opinions of different people, right? Um, this report allows 12 different partners to have a consensus and say something with authority. I think that there's big value in, in that. The second one to me is that we can talk about global trends, meaning two years ago, 80 million people, 
Last year, 108 million people. Today, 124 million people. 55% increase in two years. Almost apples to apples. Not exactly apples to apples, but almost apples to apples. That's, there is power in, 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 in showing that. The third usefulness of something like this, for me the biggest one probably, is that you have both humanitarian and development partners working from the same base. Both are agreeing that, yeah, this is the base. So let's go and see what we can do. So that's, that's the report in cell, itself, the, the, the three things. Now, in terms of early warning information, uh, the more we can collect and the more we can disseminate. Dissemination is really important in this. Whether it is through a, a, a global network, whether it is through some other platform, it increases the efficiency of our responses. And it sheds light on what is happening in different parts. As researchers, my, my plea is that can we come up with some indicators which are less but more robust so we spend less time in the field collecting them, whether it is on phone or going in and all of that, but it is giving you more information to act upon. I mean, what is it which is new where we can use our new technologies to in fact do that? My, my, there's not enough time, but I have something in mind which I want to, to express, which is, is there some sort of a well-being indicator which we can use whether it is a photo, whether it is psych, uh, psychiatric questions or something through which I can say you are okay and you are not okay. If you are not okay, why do I have to worry about you? I will worry about who is not okay and what is the reason behind that. That type of uh, work which is, which is really uh, important. Coming back to, to your <coughs> question from, 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 from SAVE, why would you expect the numbers in 2018 to go down. Logically, you should not expect the numbers to go down in 2018. Why? Because we are not seeing any structural change. Stop some of the conflicts, find a political solution to these conflicts, the numbers will start to go down. But without that, don't expect numbers to go down. And I think this is almost, uh, um, I mean, it's logic. Yeah. So. So for us, if you want the numbers to go down, we have to have a political solution to these conflicts. Till we find a political solution to these conflicts, we have to continue doing what do we are doing in terms of saving people's lives and on the resilience side, changing people's lives so they don't become enticed in some of the things which are happening around, around, the, around the world. Um, I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's no, what thanks, Thank Eric. you. Maybe uh, Dominic. To follow up on that point, uh, since we gave the, uh, the subtitle for this conversation to line humanitarian development uh, uh, assistance in situation of food crisis, but last point clearly makes clear is the third element of that equation should be peace building. Mm. So mm. how do we do that alignment and what's, what's happening in practice to, to, to align the peace building into this equation? No, thank you, Robin. And, and perhaps to start by also coming back to the the question on what is changing with a report like this one. I think really a report like this one, and I, I think it's something you may not have noticed, but which I think is very important. 
If you look at the cover page of this report, there is not the logo of WFP, FAO, uh, IFPRI, it's the, the FSIN. And therefore, the, our goal was really to produce a technical report, a technically neutral report, which provides all decision makers and all practitioners with the information they need to try to inject, I would say, uh, a rational dimension in the in the decision making. We know that there will always be uh, political aspects by all donors that are taken into consideration when allocating their resources. But how can we equip our our colleagues with a strong evidence-based report that enables them to make indeed the case that not only uh, geographically, I mean, because we see that there are. You know, last year we had the four famines, so-called four famine countries. It basically attracted, uh, in the case of FAO, more than half of the total resources we mobilized last year was for these four countries. The rest was for the, the 30 other countries. I mean, same for WFP. Uh, so how can we, through a report like that, inform to avoid, to, to have everybody uh, informed of, for example, the, the, the forgotten crisis, the Central African Republic of the world, uh, one. Uh, and, then, and then, of course, thematically, to indeed bring on board much earlier on the development players. And, and we were talking of the, the discussion, the long-term discussion that is taking place in the context of the World Bank. But the World Bank has, I would say, already walked the talk uh, through their uh, fragility, conflict, and violence. They have already started to invest in really the most difficult protracted crisis of the world. In the case of FAO last year, we've been working with the bank in Yemen, in Somalia, and in South Sudan, with substantial investment from the bank. And again, the same for the, for, for, for WFP in this country. So I think it's, uh, it's absolutely important. Now, true, uh, indeed, when you look at the numbers, and I think it's important, we are talking of this report, but also the SOFI report, the state of food and, and nutrition security in the world, is also saying that 60% of those chronically undernourished are living in conflict-affected countries. So I think there, of course, political solutions are absolutely essential. There is no doubt. This is the, the first thing that, we, uh, that needs to take care. But I think in the meantime, uh, what we have to do is see and, and thereby responding to the call from the, from the UN Secretary General. I mean, I still remember on his second day on the job, uh, Mr. Guterres was calling all uh, UN entities uh, to support sustaining peace uh, activities in the context of their uh, mandate and their uh, comparative advantage. So in FAO, we have very much internalized that. And we have uh, now... Uh, basically developed our own uh, framework on sustaining peace in the context of the 2030 agenda. And in doing so, what we realized is that FAO was engaged indeed already in a whole number of, uh, of activities, but that, that was not, I, I would say, part of a deliberate move towards indeed sustaining peace. And, uh, and, and now we have this framework that basically defines the work we do on conflict basically working on the drivers of conflict that are 
in some cases at least, if not in many cases, in, uh, at least at community level, uh, that start over issues of access to, uh, to water, access to pasture, access to land. Uh, therefore, what can we do uh, to do that? Uh, then, working in conflict, how can we, I mean, bearing in mind that in all these countries, 80% of the people depend on agriculture for their livelihood. We tend to forget that. We tend also to forget that, uh, I mean, sometimes we have a very simplistic approach saying, well, when there is a conflict, everything stops. Uh, people are just waiting for assistance to come. No, I mean, agriculture continues. It's much more difficult for agriculture to continue, but it continues and it needs to be supported. So how can we do it better and, and faster? And then finally, how can we have all our program across the organization, all in all countries, uh, conflict sensitive? to make sure that, at the very least, we do no harm uh, with all the goodwill we may have, we could, you know, exacerbate or trigger some conflict. So really, I think each and every organization has a role to play in that, and for sure, in the area of food security, we have something to contribute. <coughs> Thanks, Dominique. Maybe in line with that, there was also a question about water and land management in this context, maybe also in conflict situations. How since you're also uh, the strategic leader, uh, program leader for resilience at, at FAO. So what's, what's the role of water and land management in this Well, situation? of course, absolutely, uh, absolutely critical. It's a, it's a it's huge importance. And, and yes, I mean, I refer to issues of conflict that uh, originate from access to land, access to, uh, to water. But in the meantime, I mean, what? Okay, sorry. No, I mean, I, I refer to the to the I mean, the role of um, issues of access to uh, to natural resources, water, etc. But it's clear that what we tend to forget is that uh, there is also a large number of uh, of people in this report, uh, 39 million, who are uh, those affected by extreme uh, weather events. And therefore, in this context, of course, issues of land and, in particular, uh, water management are absolutely uh, critical. And this is why not only our strategic objective, but uh, uh, other strategic objectives are very much focused on that. And this is why an organization like FAO, as, uh, for example, for the, for the Near East region, we have a, a clear focus on the issue of water scarcity, which is, which is absolutely uh, fundamental for the, for, for the region. Okay, thank you. Um, lastly, there was also a question, uh, the first question, whereas Venezuela. Um, what I can say from, uh, if precise, we are undertaking now a study on the food security situation in Venezuela. It's extremely difficult to collect the correct uh, information for it, but uh, hopefully uh, in the coming weeks we'll have uh, first uh, results uh, of that. But maybe, Luca, so you have also a view on that uh, from the work on the IPC, why is it so difficult to do things in Venezuela at the moment and include it into this well, big panorama? Uh, you, have seen, you have seen in when I, when I showed the result of the, of, the, of the global report. Last year, I mean, through a number of, of uh, analysis, we believe that there are 61 countries in which there is a likelihood of, uh, of, of a food crisis. But we uh, 
produce funding only for 51. Basically because we said unless we are, the analysis is robust enough, we don't make a call. So Venezuela is one of these countries. Uh, the problem is, is a governance issue and is an open secret that in countries like Venezuela, Eritrea, North Korea, today is very difficult to collect the data that we think are necessary to make a call in terms of, so there is a concern, there, there are a number of analyses that we like, we like to undertake, but um, doing an IPC, for instance, which means uh, a group of people, analysts, bringing together all the analysis in context like the one of Venezuela is a bit unlikely at, at the moment, and for obvious reasons. But is, this is one of the, of the risks of, of, uh, of food security analysis, in the sense uh, you go into a country, if food security is a, a political problem, we have a problem, for example, at the moment in, in Congo, if, if they think it's a, it's a political problem, then, 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 uh, then the, the analytical process you want to undertake becomes a bit much more difficult, no? So, this is so, I cannot say that I see I will have Venezuela in the map, yeah. that is. We know it's difficult, not a good situation, of course, but, so, oh, but we're working on it. Okay, to, to close the Q&A, we have one or maybe more questions from people online. Um, I have three questions. The first one is from Mircidia. Um, she's from European Commission, Directorate for International Cooperation and Development. She basically says, the report seems to focus on acute malnutrition. How do you think chronic malnutrition can be factored into assessing food crisis? The second one is from SB, how is resilience operationalized at the country levels? We are already struggling um, with the multi-sectoral coordination in areas such as nutrition interventions. How do we change the thinking that resilience is another project? The third one is from PA. Um, numbers are staggering. Could we have done this report earlier? And what practices are in place to measure the progress? Thank you. Okay. Um, three questions. Uh, I suggest um, to the to three panelists to just take on one of them and try to be brief with an eye on the time so we can uh, finish this uh, this event at uh, 11 o'clock. Um, Bess, you want to start? With sure. Any of the um, I'll take the one on Leadership, as I mentioned earlier, is, is critically important to advancing resilience. And it's not another project, it's a lens. It's how, how we think about um, the way we're doing development, how we think about the capacities that we need um, and, and where we're targeting our assistance. And I think that uh, I'll bring again the example of Kenya and their ending drought emergencies effort. This was a national effort that pulled in um, ministries from across the board, pulled in donors, and really led the way to significant investment in northeastern Kenya. And I think that's the type of multi-sectoral um, effort uh, when you have that country leadership is, is really critical. Thank you. Um, Arif, you want to talk about the chronic malnutrition uh, question? Um, no, that's, that's a really good question. I, now, if you, if you globally look at it, right, so there are about 155 million children who are chronically malnourished, of which about 122 million, which is about 75%, are living in conflict-affected areas. And when you look at 
the, the acutely malnourished children, you have about 52 to 55 million, which is in this report. Uh, again, um, majority of them obviously in the conflict-affected areas. Um, what we are, what we are, um, what we are seeing is that when in places where there is conflict, the, the, the children get wasted very, very, very quickly. So, so there has to be some kind of, uh, I mean, my executive director, he actually makes us do calculations to figure out that if we were not able to intervene in the next three to four months, and if there was no uh, assistance available, what would happen to those children? And then we are also sort of on the advocacy side, if you will, we are linking this to, to for example, the 1,000-day concept. That if we are saying that, you know, if during the first 1,000 days uh, if the, the, if of, of, uh, of a child, if they are not adequately nourished, they never catch up in terms of their productivity. So what does that say in these conflict-ridden societies about the next generation and the productivity of the next generation. So, so for us, we are, we are keeping a very, very close eye in terms of the relationship between chronic and acute malnutrition, but also trying our very best to address the acute malnutrition head on so we can save people from the consequences to the next generation. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. The last question, Dominic, uh, the um, uh, question come big, comes a bit back to an earlier question. Is this report timely enough? Well, two things. Also, I will add something on the on the how resilience is operationalized at, at country level, if you allow, because I think it, it's quite important. And as a matter of fact, on, in our sector, in the food security sector, you may know that FAO and WFP are co-leading the food security cluster. And, um, and, and what we see is that uh, we have quite a large number of partners at global and at country level. And, and there are regular demands from our partners, uh, how do we turn this, uh, you know, humanitarian development nexus, this resilience into really practice at country level. And, uh, and, and that's why I think we are, we are really committed to, to work at, and we are working with the EU also on that, at defining different typologies of response for different type of context that, th that can then be uh, indeed uh, adapted, contextualized to the uh, particular situation. So I think this is really a role that we see for us uh, as part of this, uh, of, of this, um, of this network. So now, uh, on the, it was on the timeliness of this, uh, of, of, of this report. Well, I think, uh, as was said before, um, we have this report that is produced once a year, uh, that, is enables us, that enables us to make the case forcefully, and actually we are, we are here today, but we were in Brussels last week, in Geneva, in, uh, in New York yesterday, to really uh, draw the world attention on uh, the situation of these 124 uh, million people. But uh, there are updates, 
of this report, and now there will be uh, real-time uh, information made available uh, through through the website. So each time there will be a new IPC analysis, it will be uh, it will be posted, available, and therefore uh, enable uh, much more real-time action. Because this was clearly a request from our uh, pure humanitarian colleagues. I mean, the, the the echo colleagues. I mean, they were saying, yeah, a report like that is interesting in that it makes the case, but I mean. We would like to have uh, much more operationalized. So I think this one makes the case, and then uh, we have the, re the, the real-time updates as well as the as the mid-year updates that are very important. Uh, thank you, Dominique. Uh, well, we have to bring this uh, to a close. Um, uh, what we've done, we have uh, Shang and Fan will give closing remarks. That's good for me, so I don't have to sum up anything, but before we give the floor to Schengen, let's first give a hand to the panelists uh, for informing you about the report and its uh, sponsors. <laughs>